So today we're going to be discussing the person of Jesus Christ. This is going to be a two-part sermon, sermon mini-series within the, the sermon series. So today I want to discuss the person of Christ. And the next time I preach, I want to discuss the work of Christ. There's much that can be discussed when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you probably know if you pay attention to the world around you, you talk about, you talk to people about Jesus, you hear people use Jesus' name often in vain, or maybe you've even been to art galleries and you've seen visual depictions of Jesus by various artists throughout time. Most people like Jesus. He has sort of a positive image in culture, but most people like Jesus so long as he is more or less made in their image, so long as he squares up with their perception of what Jesus should be like. So, you know, white people like the white Jesus and black people love the black Jesus and indigenous people love the indigenous Jesus. And we have depictions of Jesus as an effeminate individual or an androgynous, meaning without gender individual. We have depictions of Jesus in the media as a sort of a passive, shy uh, individual. Or some have even gone so far as to accuse Jesus of participating in promiscuity and bearing children out of wedlock. So there's, there's a positive image of Jesus on one hand, but it's not necessarily the biblical Jesus. People have throughout time sought to remake Jesus in their own image or describe and define Jesus along lines that sort of make sense to them. Well, as we discuss who Jesus is, I wanna say this right out of the gates, getting Jesus right is literally a matter of life or death. If Jesus is the sin bearer, the savior of the world, getting Jesus right, understanding who he actually is, is a matter of life or death. If you're worshiping the wrong Jesus, following the wrong Jesus, trusting in the wrong Jesus, seeking to emulate the wrong Jesus, you can mess up your entire life and your entire eternity. So we need to spend some time delving into scripture and understanding who Jesus actually is. I wanna start with some interesting facts, just some background facts about Jesus Christ. So first of all, in English, that is his first name. We call him Jesus, J-E-S-U-S. This comes from a Greek word, Jesus, which in Greek starts with a Yoda, which is an I. So Jesus, and Jesus is a Hellenized, meaning Greekized form of the Hebrew Yeshua. So if you were living in Old Testament times and your name was Yeshua, we would translate that into our English Bibles as Joshua. If you're living in the Greek, the Hellenized culture, we would go with Jesus. So Jesus' name in English is Jesus. In Greek, it's Jesus. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua. And the meaning of the name is Yahweh, which is God's covenantal name or in the Germanic translations, Jehovah. Yahweh is my salvation. So that's the meaning and the origin of the name Jesus. Then we have Christ. 
So you might think, is that his last name? Is that his surname? No, Christ is not his surname. Christ comes from the Greek word Christos. Now bear in mind that the word Christos, this is important because I want to share another little fact with you in a moment, starts with the Greek letter key, which looks like an X. So Christos starts with a letter that looks like in English an X. And this is the Greek, it's a Greek title meaning anointed or anointed one. And that's built off of a Hebrew word that we translate into English as Messiah. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus anointed one or Jesus the Messiah. How many of you feel comfortable writing the word Xmas on your Christmas cards? I do, I love it, I use it all the time. Because I know that Xmas has nothing to do with Xing Jesus out. The X at the beginning of Xmas is the first letter in the word Christos. So this is a historic Christian shortening of the word Christmas. The problem is, it's kind of humorous in many respects. The secular world thinks they're Xing out Jesus, but they're not. This is actually very much of a a Christian uh, title or a Christian word that, that can legitimately still be used by Christians today. Let's talk about when Jesus existed in his humanity. So most of us are probably aware that it is 2022. Is that the right year? Or 2022, right? So we would say then we're 2,022 years removed from the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, we are not. That's inaccurate. So in, in the fifth century, in the sixth century, actually, there was a, a scribe, his name was Dionysus Exegus. He died in 556 AD. And he was the individual, so this is 500 years after Christ, that came up with this dating system, which didn't exist prior to that, but exists now, BC AD. So before Christ, Anno Domini, the year of the king, and he, he looked back at various historical events and he did the math. And as best as he could, he decided to start with the year zero or the year one, I should say, and say, okay, if, if my math is correct, then Jesus was born here. So that's when we're gonna start Anno Domini AD. And ever since then, that dating system has stuck. The problem is, is that shortly after his death, they discovered he made some mathematical mistakes. And he, he forgot a few things in his calculations. So based upon actual historical evidence, Jesus Christ was born in and around the end of 5 BC, what we would now call 5 BC, or the beginning of 4 BC, and was crucified in and around April the 7th in the year 30 AD. So we don't need to make too much of that, but that's an interesting fact just for you to consider. You may also on occasion have been driving behind someone down the highway and you see they have a little fish sign in the back of their car. You ever wonder where that came from? You'll also see at times there's Greek words written in it, ichthus. So in English, I-C-H-T-H-U-S. Have you seen that? The Darwinians also have one with little feet on it that says Darwin in it. Have you seen those? But there's a historical origin to this word. So in Greek, the word for fish is ichthus. And early Christians, when they were under a lot of persecution, decided we need to kind of come up with some passwords, some symbols to, dis- 
to define and describe who, who the true Christians were because they were under threat. So they decided to use this fish symbol, those two curves. And the reason why they picked the fish symbol is because the word ichthus was an acrostic that described who Jesus Christ was. So in Greek, as I've already taught you, Jesus Christ's name was Jesus Christos. So I, C-H in, in English letters, or I-X in Greek letters. So Jesus Christus, Christos, and then he was also the son of God. So the Greek word for God is theos, and in its genitive or possessive form, it's theou. And then we have the word huyas, which means son. So theou huyas means son of God, and soter means savior. So we have an I, a CH sound, a TH sound, a U sound, and an S sound. So when Christians would say ichthus, what they were actually saying is Jesus Christ, son of God and savior. So to put that on your car is to declare that Jesus Christ is the son of God and he is your savior. So some interesting background facts pertaining to the date of Christ's birth and the meaning of his name. Now throughout history, various groups have sought to wage war on the true identity of Jesus Christ. And those that have taught falsehoods, false views of Christ's person, we call those heretics. So you are a heretic if you attack the fundamental identity of Jesus Christ. You're not a heretic if you get the date of his birth wrong. But you're a heretic if you remake Jesus into your own image. Or if you deny him some of his cardinal attributes or you give him attributes that he doesn't actually have. Like for example, the ability to sin or temporality. So these are what we call Christological heresies. And I wanna review about six of them with you. Again, I'm gonna give you the formal theological names of these heresies, which all sort of arose between the first and the sixth century AD. And then we'll just discuss why, why we need to uh, denounce them. So first of all, there's a heresy called Ebionism. And the Ebionites, Ebionism is a Christological heresy, and the Ebionites fundamentally taught that Jesus wasn't pre-existent, which means that he did not eternally exist. He was a created being. So that was part A of their heresy. And secondly, they taught that Jesus had no divine nature. He wasn't God. He wasn't God in any way, shape, or form. So you're like, okay, well, that, that's, that's wrong. That's a falsehood, but does it really matter? Well, yes, it does matter. The identity of Jesus matters. If Jesus wasn't preexistent and Jesus wasn't divine, then you should stop worshiping him. If he's not divine, we have no business worshiping him. And in our Christian music and in our sermons and in the Lord's Supper, we worship Christ. The New Testament believers worship Christ. You can do an extensive study on the various scripture texts where Jesus is being worshiped. So Ebionism must be abandoned as unbiblical. Then there were the Docetists. And the, Doc the Doc Docetism taught that Jesus only appeared to be human but was actually divine. So they say, yeah, he's God, he's divine in his origin, but he was sort of faking it. 
he wasn't really fully human. He just kind of pretended to be human. Well, if that's the case, then Jesus cannot be your substitute. So the full divinity of Jesus Christ enables him to forgive sins and the full humanity of Christ, which we also affirms, enables him to not only relate to you in terms of your temptation, but also to die as your divine substitute, as the second Adam. But if you toss out the full humanity of Christ, then you're left with a Jesus that actually doesn't even have the capacity to die in your place, which means you die for your sins and therefore you are damned for all of eternity. And then we have the Arians. And I, I wanna spell this again, A-R-I-A-N-S, not A-R-Y-A-N-S. So remember the white Aryan supremacists, the Aryan race, that's not the same. It sounds the same, but it's a different word. This is the Arians. This was a heretical teacher, Arius, that was teaching in and around the third century. And he taught that Jesus was the first created being. So when he looked at firstborn of creation in Colossians, he's like, well, Jesus was born first. He was like God's little boy. We're all created. He was the first one out of the gates. And he denied the divine nature of Jesus Christ. So again, if he's right, then you have no business worshiping Jesus Christ. The Apollinarians, this was another, another uh, sectarian group, another heretical group. They taught that Jesus was the God-man. You're like, well, that sounds orthodox. He's, he's God and he's man. But then they said, yeah, but, but he doesn't actually have a real human mind. So he's not fully human in the way that you are. And therefore, if that's the case, then he has, he, he has no ability to say that I was tempted as you are, I was tried as you are. So that was also an early church heresy that was, that was roundly denounced. Then came the Nestorians. The Nestorians taught that Jesus has two persons. Now we believe that Jesus is one person who has two natures, but he was two persons with the God part controlling or taking over the human part. And this gets a little bit technical. We'll come back to this in a bit, but they taught there was no union of natures. There was a radical division between the divine nature of Christ and the human nature of Christ. Well, if that's the case, then his death was not an act of his humanity, but merely an act of his divinity as the divine controls the human. And if Jesus' death was not a willing death as the scripture portrays it, he willingly went to the cross as our sacrificial lamb. He didn't fight it. He willingly condescended. He willingly substituted himself. Then his death in fact is ineffectual. The Eutychians taught, this is a sixth uh, heretical view of Christ, taught that Jesus' nature human nature was engulfed in, swallowed up in his divine nature, creating out of the two a third nature. So here they have no distinction of the divine nature and the human nature of Jesus Christ. If that's the case, then he neither has the capacity to fully represent God, nor does he have the capacity to fully represent man because he's neither. He's some sort of a weird hybrid between the two. So brothers and sisters, these were some of the battles that early Christians before the time of the internet 
before there were universities, were fighting and dealing with, and people were you know, getting their Bibles out and they're arriving at wrong conclusions of who Jesus was. And so the church would meet and they'd bring clarification to their views of who Jesus was. And last week, I introduced you to one of the statements that the early church made. In the first century, coming into the second century, early believers met and they came up with something called the Apostles' Creed. It wasn't written by the apostles, but it reflected as best as they could tell the beliefs of the apostles. And the Apostles' Creed made this very succinct declaration about Jesus. It says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And then 100 years, 200 years goes by, the Arians were sort of taking over much of the church and they were teaching falsehood. And so the church reconvened at the Council of Nicaea in the fourth century. And they took what was written in the Apostles' Creed and added even greater clarity to it. So in the Christology section of the Nicene Creed, this declaration is made. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten, Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit was incarnate, meaning enfleshed of the Virgin Mary and became man. So this is a historic definition of the person of Jesus Christ. The creed goes on to describe his work, but this is focusing in on his, his personhood. So what does the Bible teach? Are, are these statements orthodox? Are they biblical? Do they line up with historic Christian teachings? Let's find out. As we study the scriptures, we are going to, in fact, discover that Jesus is preexistent. We could say that he has always existed. Jesus Christ has always existed. This is really important for us to lock down. It matters. Jesus Christ has already existed. Let me give you some scriptural references that prove this point. John 17 John spends quite a bit of time discussing the person of Jesus Christ from the first chapter right through to the last chapter. There's a lot of information in there, a lot of doctrine in there about who Jesus is. And in John chapter 17, verse five, here is this statement. And now, Father, this is Jesus speaking, glorify me in your own presence with the glory. Listen to this statement that I had with you before the world existed. Before the first star was in the sky, before the land was separated from the water, before the first fish was swimming in the, in the ocean or animal was scurrying across the face of the earth, Jesus Christ existed as the eternal God. This helps us then to understand what Paul is talking about in Colossians chapter one. In Colossians chapter one, Paul is describing to the church at Colossae who Jesus Christ is. And in the 15th verse, 
he says about Christ, he is the image of the invisible God. An image is something you can see. To be invisible is to not be able to see it. So the idea here is to see Jesus is to see God. He is the image of the invisible God. And then it goes on with this statement, the firstborn of all creation. You're like, okay, now I'm confused. So was he born first? Because firstborn sounds like born first, doesn't it? Well, no, it's a title. It's a description of something about Jesus Christ. So remember in previous messages, we've talked about this cultural custom of primogeniture. When Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or any of the patriarchs of old had sons, the first son was the primary inheritor of his father's estate. All the other boys, sorry, are spares. But the first son was the primary inheritor of the father's estate. The firstborn was the one that would represent the wealth and prosperity of his father to future generations, carry on his name. This is the law of primogeniture. So when Jesus is described as the firstborn, well, it wouldn't even make sense to say, oh, that means he was born at creation. No, he was born in a manger in Bethlehem in his humanity. So what does it mean? It means he's the the one who carries forward into the world the glory of the eternal father. He represents the father to us, which squares up with what we read in John 17, five, that I had with you before the world created. So the scriptures is very clear that Jesus Christ existed before matter existed. I'll give you another reference in the, in the gospel of John. In John chapter eight, verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, Now, what would you expect in English for him to say next? You'd expect him to say, I was, right? Because he's he's speaking in the past. Before Abraham was, I was. But he uses the present, active indicative. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Like, okay, that's bad grammar. Did he misspeak? No, in 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 the ears of his Jewish listeners, they would have heard the I am as one of the ways that the eternal God manifested himself to the Israelites of old. It says, I am, I am the I am. It's like, I am what? Well, because we are created beings and we think by comparison, we always have to use various words added to the end of I am to describe who we are. So you're like, well, who are you? I am a male. I am human. I am pastor. I am incredibly good looking. Okay, this is all theoretical stuff. So I am, we, we add some sort of a description to I am. And then it comes to God. Well, God is holy, God is creator, but God is the only one that can just say, I am. I am outside of time, I'm the eternal existent one. I am, I am the source of all being. So when God says, I am, he's telling us something about his identity. He's telling us something about his superiority. I am, I exist, but it's also referring to his eternality, the fact that he existed forever. So Jesus is declaring to his listeners 
his divinity. So you might think to yourself, well, maybe he wasn't saying that. Well, how, how did the people around him understand what he was saying? They understood exactly what he was saying. Listen to this. They didn't agree with it, but they understood that Jesus was claiming divinity. So they picked up stones to throw at him. They wanted to kill him because they're like, he's blaspheming. So they didn't agree with his claim, but they understood his claim. Now, if I get up here and said to you, hey, I got an announcement today, I am God. And you didn't, you didn't say anything? You didn't challenge that? You didn't question that? You'd be complicit in me propagating a lie. I'm not God, I'm created being. I, I'm a human being made in the image and likeness of God, but I'm not God. Well, Jesus' listeners understood that he was claiming divinity. If Jesus didn't mean that, well, what should he have done next? Sorry, I misspoke. You're misunderstanding me. That's not what I meant. I meant I'm just God's little boy. Or I meant I'm a created being. No, he allows the accusation to stand because that is in fact what he's claiming, divinity. So Jesus in his deity is both outside of time and divine, but condescends and takes on human flesh. Now there are some implications to the eternality of Christ, folks. Like this isn't just good theology. There's implications. Who Jesus is affects your approach to him. One of the implications is that his authority transcends the limits of time. Because Jesus is eternal, his authority transcends the limits of time. It's not isolated to his earthly ministry. It's not isolated to his pre-incarnate displays under the old covenant, the theophanies of the old covenant. It's not limited to when things are going well. The authority of Christ transcends all time. Christ has authority as God every single moment of every single day. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords now, in the past, and in the days to come. Now, I think this is kind of important, especially in a culture that doesn't seem to wrap their mind around this. Jesus Christ has full authority every moment of every day. The fullness of his kingdom has not yet been displayed. It's not yet been fully evidenced. But he is absolutely and authoritatively King of kings and Lord of lords. He never ceases to be God. This means that by implication, everyone needs to bow the knee to Jesus Christ and acknowledge his authority over their lives every moment of every day. This is not just a future thing. This is in our preaching. We are calling people to bow the knee to God now, to surrender their lives to Christ now, because he has authority over you. He wasn't a temporary God. He didn't just become God. His authority transcends all time. And secondly, in his deity, he knows the beginning and the end. So we can trust him. He has always existed. He existed before the word always could be used because always is a time word. He just is. He is the great I am. Secondly, to flesh this out a little bit further, not only is he eternal, but he is God. He is God. In Colossians chapter one, verse 18, it says of Christ, and he is the head of the body, the church. Not this guy, not the elders, not the government, not the denomination, 
He is the head of the church. This is why on every bulletin we've ever printed and on every website we've ever developed, it always says, Jesus Christ is the great pastor of the church because we wanna drive that home. Jesus Christ is the over-shepherd. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the text goes on to say. The firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In everything. What is that inclusive of? Everything. He wants to be preeminent in your marriage. He wants to be preeminent in your wallet. And he certainly is preeminent in his church. For in him, verse 19 of Colossians 1, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Not 50% of it or 25% of it or 10% of it or just a little bit of God to make him look really awesome. All the fullness of God is displayed to us in Christ. So if you want to know God, you have to know Christ. To fail to know Christ is to fail to know the fullness of God. By the way, this is why on this side of the cross, we have a redemptive historical advantage over old covenant believers. Because we see Christ, we see God in greater clarity because we've encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew, 20, in Matthew chapter one, verse 23, the first chapter of the New Testament, there's a clear claim to the divinity of Christ. It amazes me that there are so many cults. A cult is typically defined as a sectarian Christian group that denies, among other things, the deity of Christ. The occult is when you worship the devil, but the occult would be like Jehovah's Witnesses. I had the privilege of working for a Jehovah's Witness employer the, the first summer after my first year of Bible college. Every other employee was Jehovah's Witness. I love these guys. They were great guys, great guys to work for. We talked all day long about the divinity of Christ and our differences of beliefs. They just don't see it. But the Bible is so crystal clear that Jesus Christ is in fact fully God. You don't have to go more than a few verses into the first chapter of the New Testament. In verse 23, it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And what's his name going to be? They shall call his name Emmanuel. What does that mean? It means God with us. I mean, how much more clear does it have to be? Jesus is God with us. To be with Jesus is to be with God. The fullness of God is displayed through the person of Jesus Christ. But it doesn't end there. Not only is Jesus referred to using various attributes reserved for God alone in the scriptures, but there are several more definitive statements about the deity of Christ. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. 2 Peter 1, 1. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Some have tried to skirt around that. They're like, no, no, it's supposed to be read this way. Our God, comma, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. They're two distinct individuals. It's like, well, then I'll take you to John 10.30. In John 10.30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. He doesn't go on to say one in mission, one, one in mind, one in our values, we cheer for the same sports teams. No, we're one. 
So throughout the New Testament, Jesus is described definitively as God. This is why we worship him. He is divine. He is our eternal God. The creeds describe him as God from God. Now you understand why that makes sense. He's God from God. He's not a God from the God. He's not one of many gods sort of hiving off of the true and living God. He is singular God from singular God. This is why the creeds say he is true God from true God, not a God from a God. But he is true God from true God. This is why the, 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 the creeds say he is consubstantial. How many of us have used that word this week? It's a, it's a, it's a rare word, but it's a weighty word. It means of the same essence. He's consubstantial with the Father. God is one in essence, three in persons. Jesus Christ is one in personhood with two distinct, indivisible, but united natures. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Not 50-50, not 49-51. He is fully God and he is fully man. This is why in John chapter one, verse one, which we discussed in last week's message, it says of Christ, he was with God, which helps us to understand he is distinct in personhood from the Father. So he is with, that's an important word, he's with God, but then it also says he was God. So he is distinct in personhood but he is the same in essence. You're like, wow, that's hard to understand. Yeah, because there's nothing else in creation like God. And because our minds are limited and because we tend to learn by analogy, we, we can identify a woman by comparing her with a man. We can identify the characteristics of a child by comparing them with an adult or a senior citizen. We can differentiate between a domestic house cat and a roaring lion, because one is big, one is small, one has a mane, one doesn't. We're always comparing and contrasting. We do it intuitively. Our knowledge grows and we're comparing and contrasting. So when we want to figure out God, we're like, well, what can we compare him with? And we come up with all sorts of ridiculous and unhelpful analogies. Well, he's kind of like a cherry pie, the filling cherry in the crust. No, he's not a thing. He is one in essence, but three in person. So he's kind of like water, which can take a liquid form, a gas form, a solid form when, it, when it's frozen. No, don't try to draw analogies from the created to try to understand the creator. Allow the revelation of God's word to speak for itself. God is one in essence and three in persons. And then when you get to Christ, you discover that he has a fully divine nature, which is eternal. And then he took on, without giving up the divine, the human. What are the implications of the divinity of Christ? Well, I'll stress it again. We get to worship him. We worship Christ. It also means that we should obey him. If he's God, wouldn't, wouldn't you think it'd be a good idea for creatures to obey the creator? If he says, do this, yeah, he probably knows better than you. If he says, don't do that, probably knows better than me. If he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, probably be a good idea to trust him. So we worship him 
We also obey him. And thirdly, we defend his identity. So we, we debate false teachers. We, we nip falsehood in the bud. We correct the new believers' misunderstandings about Jesus. When someone says God is three parts, uh-uh-uh. No, he's not. He's not like a cherry pie. He's not three parts. He's three persons. Well, we believe in three gods. No, we do not. We believe in one God who is one in essence, who eternally lives in perfect fellowship and unity. That's why he can love. Who eternally exists in three persons forever and ever and ever. So he's preexistent. He is fully God and he was fully human, incarnated, and in fact is fully human. Here's how the creeds describe it. Jesus, they describe Jesus as the only begotten. That, how many have used that word in a conversation this week? It's also a rare word, but it's a, it's a word that past generations wrestle with because they wanted to, as accurately as possible, find a word that would describe who Jesus was. And the word begotten means both not made and one of a kind, rolled into one. He is not made and he is also one of a kind. There's no second son, third son, fourth son. So son, so I have sons. That means I'm their father. They came from my body and my wife's body. So you might think, oh, that's Jesus. No, again, this is a title that's described to God. It doesn't mean that he was created. He was the son in his humanity of Mary by the immaculate conception of the Holy Spirit, but he is fully human, begotten, one of a kind, not made, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Father. This is how the creeds describe Jesus. So did they get it right? I think they did. In Matthew chapter one, you can find your way there. We have the birth narrative, one of the birth narratives of Jesus coming into the world. As you find your way there, let me make a couple comments and then we'll back it up with scripture. Jesus, in an orthodox understanding, and if you weren't here last week, orthodox means straight way or straight praise. In a biblical understanding is fully divine and he is fully human. His divinity was and is eternal. He was always the divine eternal son known as the Logos. But in his conception, he took on humanity. He added humanity without subtracting divinity. You may have heard the, the term the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. This is a theological term that talks about the two natures of Jesus in one person. So not two people, but two natures in one person. Now the birth of Jesus, this is Matthew 1, 18, 25, of Jesus Christ, Yahweh is our salvation. He's the anointed Messiah. That's the meaning of his name. Took place in this way. Why do we need to know this? There's no throwaway lines in the Bible. The information we get is important. So there's something about the way he was, he entered into the world that, God wants you to know about. 
when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, so that's kind of the equivalent, it's not quite the same, but it's the equivalent of a, a legal engagement. But they weren't together. They weren't having sexual intercourse. They hadn't consummated the marriage yet. This would take place for a year, this betrothal period. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So obviously he thought she'd been unfaithful to him as one would normally expect in circumstances like this. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. So here's another example where God, outside of sensory experience, offers revelation. And from a Christian perspective, contrary to Darwinianism or scientism or the modern secular system of education, all knowledge that you can experience in the, in the minds of most people come from our senses. Can I see it, hear it, smell it, taste it, feel it? Can I prove it through mathematical formulas? Can I prove it in a science lab? Can I prove it using historical data or geographic, geological inquiry? In, in, in the modern, this is really important, in the modern mind, we determine what's right and wrong, what's true and not true. And if we can't rationally get there, then it's not true, it doesn't exist. This is a pretty modern form of epistemology, meaning the study of knowledge. Biblically, we do believe in rational evidences and sensory experience, but we also believe God gives information from beyond this world, it's called revelation, through the Holy Spirit, through the written word of God, through the person of Christ, and sometimes through angelic visitors. So this is divine revelation, which actually is supra-knowledge, meaning that it transcends human knowledge. It's absolutely true. What God says is absolutely true. So when we say, we believe it because God says it, the modern mind's like, oh, that's a cop-out. You just checked your brain at the door. You're anti-intellectual, you're anti-science. It's like, no, we have a different epistemology than you. We have a different starting point to how you know or don't know something. We actually believe that divine revelation is superior to human reasoning. So the angel comes to Joseph and he obviously has a high regard for divine revelation saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Yahweh is our savior. All this took place to fulfill what God had spoken by the prophet. So God had predicted this through Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Then when Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord com commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Until we know Jesus actually, Mary and Joseph did have sex. She wasn't a perpetual virgin. Jesus' earthly brothers are actually named in the New Testament record. But for now, she was a virgin and he called his name Jesus. Joseph was a man of faith. He didn't check his brain at the door. He wasn't like, okay, well, this is an angel, but what about the science? What about the, what about the sociology of this? He received, faith is not check your brain at the door, Faith is, 
I put on, uh, in, in a place of superiority, divine revelation over human reasoning. I don't disbelieve in human reasoning. I don't disbelieve in good science. I don't disbelieve in good rational inquiry. But revelation always trumps. So if God says it, I do. If God says the world was created in six days, I don't try to squish evolution into the text because this is what science says. Science changes. They'll eventually change their mind, folks. The theories will eventually change and quote unquote evolve or devolve, depending which way you want to look at it. But God, what God says is always true. And by reasonable faith, we accept what he says. So in this text, we definitely have clear teaching that Jesus in his humanity was created. He came into existence at a particular point in time. But he was also fully and eternally God. So Jesus is the eternal God who takes on full humanity in the incarnation. And folks, listen to this, retains it forever. Jesus will always be fully human. Like, really, that's interesting. In the eternal kingdom, Jesus is fully human. He's fully human now. It wasn't like, I'm going to have 30 years and I'm going to just go back to being God. He is fully human and fully God. And this explains a lot of the descriptions of Jesus in the New Testament. So listen to this very carefully. Jesus can act out of both natures, out of his divine nature and out of his human nature without diminishing either. He can act out of his divine nature and his human nature without diminishing either. This is why in Jesus' earthly ministry, he claims the power to forgive sins. Humans can't do that, but he's divine. So he can actually forgive sins. Well, if he's God, what business does he have of dying on the cross as our substitute? Because he's also fully human. So in his divinity, we're assured that he did not, cannot, will not sin and in fact can forgive sins, but in his humanity, he has the capacity to be our substitute. We celebrated that in the Lord's Supper today. See, all this makes sense. It all, it all ties together. He's our substitute. Why is he capable? Not only because he's, he's, he perfectly obeyed the word of God, but because he's fully, he's fully human. This is why Jesus is sometimes described as the second Adam. He was just as human as the first Adam, who, by the way, was made as a direct result of God's hand. It's like, well, I don't know if I believe that Jesus could be conceived by the Holy Spirit. Oh, but you have no problem with Adam being created by God. But when Adam sinned, what he did is he passed the sin nature on generation after generation after generation, father to son, father to daughter, father to son. But it's the, it's the father that passes on in terms of federal responsibility, the sin nature to his children. Well, Jesus is the second Adam. He's fully human because he's born of a full human woman, who by the way, wasn't perfect. She was godly, but not perfect. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But because he was not born of a man, he did not, he was not born with a sin nature. In his, hum, in his deity, he knew everything. In his deity, this is, this is perplexing and mysterious, but listen, 
in his humanity, he, he still had the three omnis at his disposal. He was still omnipresent. He was still omnipotent. He was still omniscient. In his deity, he knows everything. But in his humanity, he does not know everything. In his humanity, it says in Luke 2.52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in the favor of God and man. He had to learn to eat in his humanity. He had to learn to speak. He had to learn to put his sandals on. In his humanity, he's limited as we are because he's fully human. But in order to take on the limitations of humanity, he does not give up any of the unlimited power or knowledge or presence of the eternal God. In his humanity, he relates to our temptation. Remember what the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter four, for we do not have a high priest that is unable to sympathize. Jesus is our high priest that represents us eternally before the father. You're like, yeah, but he doesn't know what it's like to be uh, tempted with uh, depression, to be tempted with covetousness, to be tempted with uh, stealing, to be tempted to lash back. Oh, he doesn't understand what that's like. No, he is fully human and he lived in a broken world and we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. He is able to sympathize, but at the same time, he was perfectly obedient. So was he tempted? Well, he was tempted in the wilderness, remember that? But listen to this, our temptations more often than not come from within because we have fallen humanity to deal with. Do, are we tempted sometimes from without? Yes. Spend time with bad company, you're gonna be tempted. We also have demonic temptation. So we have demonic temptation and we have the world around us, which will tempt us. But we also have this, this broken humanity that we're dealing with. So we say our three enemies are the world within, the world without, and the world beyond. This internal world, Aaron Rock's depravity, his brokenness, his broken human nature, the fact that he's a descendant of Adam, oftentimes my sin is not a result of your influence, it's just me. But not with Jesus. Jesus was tempted from without by the devil, by the world. But Jesus was never tempted by his own desires because he was, in fact, perfectly human and the sinless and eternal God. And because of this, he was qualified to become our substitute. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden before sin entered into the world, before they were broken, they were tempted from without. But unfortunately, they succumbed to it and, and fell. So folks, we have the Lord Jesus Christ, which we've come to worship today, who is eternal, eternally preexistent, who is both fully God and fully man. We've touched base a little bit on his work. We'll discuss that more in the next message. But today I want you to be thinking deeply about the person of Jesus Christ. He is our Lord and he must always be our Lord. He was meek, so we must demonstrate meekness. He was a servant to all, and so we must be a servant to all. He was perfectly loving, and so that must be our aim. He was righteously angry, 
when God's laws were broken. And likewise, we should be righteously angry when God's laws are broken by us or by others. He did not run from addressing conflict and sin in the face of evil, and nor should we. We have a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all of which are divine in their nature. But Christ also had a human nature, able to act out of his divine nature or able to act out of his human nature without dividing or merging either one. In his humanity, he was learning. He was limited. He was in one village at one time. He was putting one foot before the other, just like we do in order to make progress across the landscape. But in his deity, he was fully God, fully knowledgeable, fully present, fully powerful. This is our amazing savior. And because he is both God and man, which is a unique theological doctrine of all the world religions, he both can forgive you of your sins. He can be absolutely trusted. He must be obeyed. And he is worthy of all your worship. And yet at the same time, he knows what it's like to be human. He knows what temptation is like. And he also is our eternal substitute and our supreme example. So he's divine and he's human. So what is our response? Worship him, trust him, and emulate him all the days of your life and you'll never go wrong. 